from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And uh, believe it or not, I just had a martini made for me by Roger Stone. Yep, uh, Roger Stone is joining the New York City Young Republicans Club. They're having a fundraiser in Lower Manhattan. I was there briefly before I came on the air, and he was behind the bar mixing drinks, and uh, he looked terrific. Uh, Roger Stone was there. Uh, tons of people. There's probably about 200 people waiting online for a hand-mixed cocktail from Roger Stone. So just wanted to bring you up to speed on that one. And lots to discuss tonight. We have a bunch of things to discuss. We're going to discuss um, what's going on with the whistleblower claims against the FBI with respect to pro-life Christians and how they're targeting them. We're also going to talk about the radicalization of youth and how they're trying to erase innocence uh, amongst our children today. And we're also going to get into this right here, which is a conversation on history. So we're going to talk about that as well. But I wanted to start with a couple of clips of audio. And one of the clips of audio that I wanted to start with was the... Let's see here. There's there's so many good ones. But it's the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. He's on Fox Business today. And he says that all of the Democrat spending has brought us inflation. And I can't help but agree with Speaker McCarthy because, I mean, that's true, right? It was Biden's spending that really brought us there. Had there been less spending, if we didn't spend $6 trillion in the last couple of years, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. Listen to this. It doesn't appear that the president is really uh, looking at your efforts to rein in spending as realistic. I mean, let's face it, Speaker McCarthy, the spending in the next year would stretch to six point nine trillion dollars. That's about two and a half trillion above pre-pandemic levels or 55 percent. What are your thoughts? Is this going to pass? No, I don't believe that. I don't even believe the Democrats would support this because why? What has American public learned? All this Democrat spending has brought us inflation, has brought us problems with them attacking energy. We have higher energy costs. It costs more than a dollar a gallon from when he took office. This is the wrong approach. And this president doesn't believe there's any waste in government spending with that one point seven trillion dollar omnibus bill they passed in the middle of the night. There is a lot of place that we can streamline in government. And remember, where does government get their money? From the hardworking taxpayer. They take it from them. Taxation is theft, is what I'm going to say right now. Now, listen, I don't typically believe that. I typically believe that taxation is just a part of life. But the reality is it's come to a point where it's so high and so uh, pervasive that you can't help but think, man, they're stealing our money. And I think he's right. So when Joe Biden gets out there and he says things that, you know, uh, to the tune of, you know, the biggest threat is MAGA Republicans or, 
it's MAGA Republicans and their failed policies that are costing us money or that Reagan had a 27% tax rate. All of it is fake. It's phony. It's fraud. It's BS. Because we haven't seen inflation like this in 43 or 44 years. Now, you tell me, how is it that we get to a place where we have this type of inflation without Joe Biden? Well, we don't, right? It's simply the fault of Joe Biden. So when Joe Biden tries to blame this on anybody else or a president, four or five presidencies removed like Ronald Reagan, come on, really? Come on. It's it's weak to say the least. Uh, it's a weak argument. But this is where Joe Biden is. And that's not the only thing, right? We've got Joe Biden... Uh, on the um, on the question of his spending and trying to blame Republicans, but there's more. We also have let's see what I flagged a particular cut that I wanted to get to. Uh, Maggie Haberman. Maggie Haberman was on CNN yesterday, and in regarding the Trump case, she says this is uncharted territory. It's a misdemeanor that they're trying to push a felony on. And she's 100% right. I rarely agree with Maggie Haberman because she's one of those people that would want to see Trump behind bars. And all I could say with respect to this particular clip of audio is that they are about to try and venture into getting a concoction through a jury to get an indictment. And it's uh, and a conviction. And it's it's sad to say the least. They're doing this all in the name of hate. Listen to this. I mean, how do you expect him to react to this? Does it affect his campaign at all? So we don't we're entering uncharted territory here. I mean, I think it's important to note about this case. As Kara said, this is a misdemeanor that they're trying to push up to a felony. It's a it's a which is a really kind of exotic, exotic exotic case. And and a judge could decide, no, we're going to knock it back to a misdemeanor. Uh, That is that is difficult for a prosecutor when it's a former president. I understand, uh, you know, justice is supposed to be equal, uh, you know, for all. But, you, you know, people take into consideration factors like this. I think we could see a rallying effect from his supporters. It could be that more people are turned off by this. I just don't think we know. We know how he will use it, which is that he will say he's being attacked and victimized. And we have seen that over and over again. We're going to continue to. So there you go. Maggie Haberman even agrees that, man, this is a witch hunt. (laughs) In my opinion, this is a witch hunt. And it doesn't stop there. There's a lot more. You've even got Jane Fonda. She's on The View today. And she's saying that, in my opinion, what I understand from this, pro-life politicians should be murdered. Listen to this one. We have experienced many decades now of having agency over our body, of being able to determine when and how many children to have. We know what that feels like. We know what that's done for our lives. We're not going back. I don't care what the laws are. We're not going back.
That's funny. When she says murder, people that are pro-life, <laughs> they'll pick up on that, this, that, blah, 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 blah. But had it been a Republican or anybody on the conservative side that said something like that, they wouldn't let us live it down. Now, granted, you've never heard me say that. I've never heard any other Republican say that. But it's fascinating to me that they make a joke of it when they say we should murder the Republicans and the pro-life in the movement and everybody else gets a pass. This is just so indicative of the cultural divide that we have today. It's a sick place that we're in in America. I, I hate to to be the bearer of bad news, but that's exactly what's going on. You've got radical left-wing activists like Jane Fonda and and her friends in the media, Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Behar, uh, Sonny Hostin, all, you know, all her friends on The View. And they're literally calling for the murder of those that are pro-life in the political movement. That's disgusting. That shouldn't be accepted because it shouldn't be accepted if we called for the murder of those that were pro-abortion, right? Exactly. Anyway, we're going to continue our discussion straight ahead. Give us a call if you'd like. 833, the number 4 Valdez, 833-4-VALDEZ. I am Rich Valdez, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Well, thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. If you want to give us a call, chime in on the conversation. The number is 833-4-VALDEZ, and that is Valdez with an S on all of the social media, as well as the phone number. And uh, you've seen James Rosen as the White House correspondent on Newsmax TV. I know I do. I see him all the time. He does a great job holding KJP Kareem Jean-Pierre to task when he has to ask those difficult questions. But he's also written a book, and the book is called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. James Rosen, welcome to the program, sir. Rich, it's an honor to be with you. Excellent. Thank you for being here with us. And uh, uh, Scalia is one of my favorite justices ever. Uh, I, I lament every time I think that he's not with us anymore, but I'm grateful for the time that we had him. And let's talk a little bit about your book, because I think there's not enough attention paid to Justice Scalia. Why did you choose to write a book about Justice Scalia, James Rosen? Well, Rich, I had the privilege of knowing Justice Scalia a little bit. Uh, the, one of the first things I did when I came to Washington to be a Washington correspondent for Fox News way back in 1999 uh, was to write to Justice Scalia to seek an interview. Uh, this commenced an unusual and amusing uh, correspondence between the two of us that went on for about a two-year period. Uh, and it also led to a pair of lunches that we had together, one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of us, uh, at his beloved A.V. Ristorante Italiano, which was this uh, modest Italian restaurant in a sketchy part of Washington, D.C. We mm -hmm. drank wine together. 
Justice Scalia asked me to eat vegetables off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. He said, come on, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm, <laughs> now I'm shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate. He drove me back to my office in his car. Uh, it was a bit of a scary experience, and I subsequently confirmed in my research for this book with classmates of his that dated back to the 1950s and uh, even clerks of his into the 21st century that being a passenger in Justice Scalia's car was scary for them as well. What I, those, his, his early generosity uh, to a young reporter a quarter century ago left me convinced at that point that someday I would write about this man. That's great. I, I can't gloss over the fact that riding in his car was scary. Was he a fast driver or just uh, a, a little bit edgy? I think he was given to road rage. I think uh, I saw him <laughs> lean on the horn, and um, I think an expletive was issued. Um, not a formal decision, but um, and, I love and again, it. if you read this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. This book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, came out this week. It it covers the first fifty years of Antonin Scalia's life. Uh, it's the most detailed biography we've ever had of him. It's the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia because the previous two books were pretty well, pretty open in their contempt for Justice Scalia, uh, even though he cooperated with one of those authors. Uh, and so being the first admiring biography of him, I think this is the first accurate biography of him. It's the book that Scalia fans like yourself and all students who are interested in an accurate history of American society and law have been waiting for. Folks, the book is Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. The author is James Rosen, uh, Newsmax White House correspondent. James Rosen, uh, in your musings uh, on Scalia and your meetings with Scalia, what stands out most to you? Antonin Scalia is one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years, not just Supreme Court justices, one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years. This book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, will show you how he rose to take his seat on the Supreme Court. He was really the embodiment of the American dream. His father was an Italian immigrant, came to this country with $400 in his pocket in 1920 and didn't speak a word of English, and yet made of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages. Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of Italian immigrants, and she became a school teacher. They were devout Catholics. And from young Nino Scalia's immersion in the liturgy and the foundational texts, the sacred texts of the, of the Catholic Church, and from his father's work, which emphasized that uh, literary texts, when translated from one language to another, should not be distorted, that the original meaning of the text should be preserved. And from his mother, the school teacher, with her emphasis on uh, compositional formalities and and grammar and so on. From all of this, young Nino Scalia, uh, Scalia emerged with a deep reverence for original meaning of texts. And he carried this forward into his work as a judge on the a Court of Appeals, and then finally the 29 terms he served on the Supreme Court. And Scalia really launched a revolution there that is still with us today and touches the life of every American in multiple ways. Uh, Scalia changed the way that lawyers argue the law, uh, write decisions in law, and even write laws themselves. 
because of his insistence on us adhering to the original meaning and not changing the text of the Constitution or calling it a living document that should expand with the times to account for new phenomena the founders couldn't have envisioned like nuclear weapons and the Internet. Scalia stood athwart all that and said, the text doesn't change, the meaning doesn't change over time. And if we try to change the meaning of a law that was passed and signed into law a year ago or 50 years ago or 200 years ago, we are in effect traveling back in time and depriving the American people of their liberties and their freedoms and their right to self-governance. You know, you made a, a very um, poignant statement that Scalia is one of the most influential Americans in the last hundred years. And I don't disagree with you, but I'd like the listeners to understand why. Could you underscore that? So um, when Scalia came along, this notion of the Constitution being a living document that should expand in its meaning as needed um, was, was prevalent. It was a liberal notion, and it was prevalent in the law. And Scalia launched this revolution uh, urging lawyers to stick to the original meaning of the text of the Constitution, how best to find the original meaning through the text itself. Liberals, in, in, in arguing for a living, breathing Constitution, would bypass the text because the text limits them. Uh, and they would look to other things. Well, what was the intent? What was the legislative intent? What was said during the debates on the House and Senate floor? What was printed in the committee reports as a bill snaked its way up to becoming a law? Scalia thought all that legislative history was extraneous and irrelevant. He said the intent of the legislature is not found in their debates or in their committee reports, which nobody voted on. Their intent is the text of the law. So the best way, Scalia argued, to uh, divine the original meaning of a law at the time it was uh, enacted is the text of the law itself. And today, when arguing cases before the Supreme Court and when writing decisions on the Supreme Court, uh, the parties involved very seldom make reference to legislative history as their first resort anymore. They are now much more frequently inclined to refer immediately to the text of the law and its original meaning. And again, keep in mind that the Supreme Court in its rulings uh, in approaching the law this way, the way that Scalia urged judges to do, uh, to, to adhere to the original meaning and to the text, um, by the time Scalia died, no less a figure than the Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, uh, a liberal on the court with whom Scalia had a great relationship, just like with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she pronounced, uh, in fact, as a result of Scalia's efforts, and he wasn't often on the winning side of the cases. He was quite happy to write in dissent, but he wrote with such brilliance and wit uh, for lay audiences to understand, not just lawyers. Justice Kagan pronounced, we are all originalists now. That's why wow. Antonin Scalia is one of the hundred or one of the most important Americans oh, of the last hundred years. Great, great story. James Rosen, stick with us. We're coming right back. The book is Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. James Rosen's our guest. I'm Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. Don't move a muscle. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way. Our phone number is 833-482-5337. And when Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court Justice, the late Supreme Court Justice, was a teenager, he was a panelist on a radio show titled Mind Your Manners. It was hosted by Betty White's husband, Alan Luden. And in the book, it's uh, More Than Password Life (laughs) and the wife of Alan Luden. There's a picture of Luden with then 17-year-old Antonin Scalia. A little bit of trivia for you. Uh, We're welcoming your calls at 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDES. And our guest is James Rosen, Chief White House Correspondent at Newsmax TV. And he is the author of the book we're discussing. And this is a good book. You got to catch it. Uh, You got to get a copy. I'd say get two copies. Um, One for you, one for a friend. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. James Rosen, welcome back. And you were telling us a little bit about some of the history of the the late great Supreme Court justice and how uh, he he drove and and dropped a a few expletives here and there with road rage, which reminded me of me. I love. I love him more now than I ever did, and I loved him to begin with. But um, you know, he had uh, endured the test of time through several administrations, and and there's a lot more. Uh, continue to clue us in on the book. So, uh, as I mentioned, the previous two books, the biographies of Antonin Scalia that exist, were really openly contemptuous of the justice and his philosophy, his legacy, his jurisprudence, his conduct. So this is the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia, and therefore, to my mind, the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia. And it benefits from a wealth of documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to the previous biographers. And I'll give you three quick examples. One is, in 1992, it turns out, his seventh term on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia conducted a secret oral history of his life in his chambers at the Supreme Court with a woman who was an attorney who served as the interviewer whom he had known for some time. And this secret oral history by Justice Scalia, looking back at great lengths on various episodes in his youth and so on, uh, was not unsealed until 2018. So this is the first biography to make use of it. Another example would be his FBI files declassified after his death. Uh, Scalia underwent four FBI background checks within 14 years as he rose through the executive branch and, and through the judiciary. And it's hundreds and hundreds of pages of the most superlative testimonials, people who knew him from all walks of life, telling the FBI again and again that this was the smartest man they had ever met. This was the most honest and incorruptible man they had ever met. This was the most qualified person for a federal judgeship. Hundreds of pages of this. As I say in the book, would that all lives paid such close scrutiny uh, would have rewarded with such superlative testimonials. And one last uh, trove of documents we can mention, and there are still others, but one in which I think our listeners, Rich, will be particularly interested, is we've all heard about the famous celebrated friendship between Justice Scalia and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, his ideological foe on the court with whom he was best of friends, ringing in the New Year's together with their spouses every year, attending the opera together, riding elephants in India together. Um, This book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. Uh, was the first to uh, to examine uh, the correspondence, the internal handwritten notes, letters, memos, draft opinions 
that flew back and forth between the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia when they first met, which wasn't on the Supreme Court. It was when they both served as judges on the appellate court one rung below the Supreme Court, often described itself as the second most powerful court in America, called the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. It was a real murderer's row of legal talent and judges who served there at that time. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork, Kenneth Starr, Lawrence Silberman, and others. And I went through RBG's papers at the Library of Congress. There's 223 boxes of them. And this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, prints for the first time, publishes for the first time, these extraordinary documents flying back and forth between RBG and Nino, the best of buddies. I call them the RBG-Nino papers. And we see in, this, in these exchanges, not only are they arguing over fine points of the First Amendment and the other legal issues before them with their typical legal genius and, and wit, uh, but you see the birth and the blossoming of this famous celebrated friendship in real time. And it's one of the real treats, I think, of Scalia Rise to Greatness. Without a doubt, I think the, um, I, I want to say the love fest between uh, uh, Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and, and other colleagues. I, I've even heard um, uh, Sonia Sotomayor speak very highly of, of Judge Scalia, Justice Scalia, excuse me. And, and and I thought it was remarkable because while their philosophy, judicial philosophy, their their view on so many things were so diametrically opposed, it seemed that their collegiality was right on par. Well, Scalia was really uh, not just a brilliant legal genius. Uh, he was a real bon vivant. He was liable at any moment in someone's house with endearing and shameless grandeur to commandeer a piano and start belting out show tunes or Christmas carols for 50 people. <laughs> um, he was very outgoing and gregarious. He had a brilliant wit. Uh, and frankly, it was easier for Scalia, and I'll cover this in greater detail in volume two, which will cover the Supreme Court years of Justice Scalia. But it was kind of easier for him to maintain good relations with the liberals on the on the appellate bench because from where he sat, they always behaved more or less as, they, as you'd expect them to do. He had a lot of problems with certain Republicans and conservatives on the bench because he felt that uh, they weren't um, sharing in his originalist approach to the law and that they should. And so sometimes his relationships with the Republican appointees on the Supreme Court were, were more uh, fraught uh, than his relationships with the, his ideological foes. Outstanding. Uh, folks, again, we're on with James Rosen, chief White House correspondent uh, for Newsmax TV and the author of the new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. You can get this wherever great books are sold. Make sure you get, I always recommend getting at least two copies so you can keep one and give one away to somebody else. Uh, so don't move a muscle. Keep it locked right there. We're going to continue with James Rosen uh, discussing his book on Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Our phone number is 8334-VALDEZ, 8334-VALDEZ. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
with Rich Valdez. All right, that's me, Rich Valdez. Uh, our number is 833-482-5337. Our guest is James Rosen, Chief White House Correspondent at Newsmax TV and the author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. James Rosen, uh, we were discussing so many things about uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, and some of the things you write about uh, that are interesting to me were that he he kept uh, close relationships with lots of people, students, friends, classmates, uh, fellows from the admin- various presidential administrations, priests, poker buddies, hunting companions, and fellow justices. I mean, it, it seems like he was a real... Um, everybody kind of person, if if that makes any sense. Put it only slightly differently, which is to say that he loved life with a great zest and great passion. And you can hear just from the, the litany of extracurricular activities that he was always pursuing that you just reeled off, that he that he really had a variety of, uh, of dimensions to him. Um, the, the book Scalia Rise to Greatness, as I mentioned, covers the first 50 years of his life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. But the previous books about him, which, as I say, were fairly open in their contempt for him, uh, they gave very short shrift to some very important episodes in his life. Uh, not only his uh, teaching stints at UVA Law School in the late 60s, a time of great upheaval right. there on the Charlottesville campus, but also a decade later as a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, uh, where he first spoke out against abortion and affirmative action on television and so on. But he had two stints in government before he became a judge and then a justice. And again, these have not really received much attention up till now. Scalia's first job in government was in 1970, when he was about 35 years old. He was hired to be the general counsel to a new startup agency created by the Nixon administration called the White House Office on Telecommunications Policy. Uh, there was a need to, uh, to consolidate under administrative control by the White House the sprawling, multidisciplinary, multi-agency uh, uh, mishmash that, that, that consisted of our, our telecommunications policy. And Scalia's legal genius was harnessed to this task. And I'm the first researcher to go examine Antonin Scalia's papers from when he was general counsel to the White House, White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. And uh, it's amazing because his internal drafts, his letters, his notes, his correspondence at that time, it was plain as day, Rich. Antonin Scalia predicted the Internet. He predicted that users would sit at remote terminals and have hundreds of TV channels to watch, that they would conduct their banking from there and so on. He also predicted the, the privacy concerns that would go with it. And he was, and his colleagues at the Office of Telecommunications Policy were using terms that wouldn't escape the lips of ordinary Americans for another 25 years, like shared computer network and mobile communications and so on. So Scalia really helped usher in the telecom revolution, and he saw the future. He saw the rise of the Internet. Uh, and we published those documents for the first time in Scalia Rise to Greatness. His other job in the federal government before he became a judge was he was assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. It's the Mm. exact same job that William Rehnquist had held when he was nominated to the Supreme Court by President Nixon. It's a very important job. It's described as the president's lawyer's lawyer. This official, the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, their job is to issue written opinions on the law and and they're binding uh, on what an administration can do and not do, what would be lawful and what would be unlawful. 
And as a result of this being the post-Watergate era, Scalia was very involved in the uh, effort to reform the intelligence communities. He was very involved in the effort to preserve the powers of the executive, of the presidency, despite an onslaught from Democrats in Congress and the news media to try to emasculate the presidency after Watergate. And it got to the point where covert operations were being run past Antonin Scalia for approval in the 1970s. And one previously unpublished story we tell in this book is that on the afternoon of April 30, 1975, uh, Scalia gets a call from the Ford White House saying, we, we're going to need your legal opinion uh, within a few hours on whether it would be lawful under the War Powers Act for us to land our helicopters on the U.S. Embassy in Saigon and wow. evacuate our personnel using helicopters off the roof of the embassy. Uh, and Scalia did give the opinion providing um, uh, approval that it would be lawful under the War Powers Act. But it, he says, in a, again, in, a, in an account that's never been told anywhere else before, I was thinking to myself, what if I didn't give the approval? Would they call off the operation just because of the advice of counsel? What is this world coming to, he said. Wow. James Rosen, chief White House correspondent for Newsmax TV and the author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. I'll leave you with a final question because I'm really curious to know. Would you say that Scalia's prescience was once in a generation or once in a lifetime? The combination of gifts is uh, and of intellect, of incorruptible piety, of devout Catholic faith. Uh, and genius and wit and affability and performance skills. That's not just once in a generation. It's, it's once in history. Uh, and there'll never be another Antonin Scalia. Uh, but as we were discussing earlier, Rich, his influence, because he shaped the way that people write, discuss, uh, and argue and, and make rulings on the law, and because that touches every area of American life, Scalia's impact is, is acutely felt on us even today. And um, again, this is a book for Scalia fans. This is the book you've been waiting for. Uh, and, and I appreciate you saying that people should buy a second copy as a gift. There's no question. All of us know someone who really reveres Antonin Scalia, and this is the perfect gift for them. Without question, even if you don't like Scalia, I mean, if you want to know something about the Supreme Court and probably arguably the, the best, uh, the the most prominent Supreme Court justice in the last, at least in my lifetime, Antonin Scalia is it. And the book is Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. The author is James Rosen. Get a copy. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere where you get books. And I recommend, again, buying at least two copies, one for yourself, one to give away. James Rosen, I thank you for being with us and enlightening us because there were so many things I didn't know. And honestly, you told us a lot of great things. But one of my favorites was I have road rage and I, I can tend to fly off the handle. <laughs> and I can tell when you said that about Scalia, I felt better about myself. <laughs> I really did. I, so I, I thank have you. that and I also like Italian food. So I have a lot in common with him. <laughs> That's terrific. Folks, get a couple of copies of this. You don't want to miss it. Scalia, rise to greatness 1936 to 1986 james rosen thanks for being a gentleman and a scholar rich i appreciate it. you've been very kind to me thank you yes sir all right folks more to come straight ahead your calls and more uh plus we're going to get into a couple of things on radicalism as we get into the next hour don't move a muscle don't go anywhere i am rich valdez this is america at night with rich valdez America. 
All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. And uh, uh, during the break, our producer sent me an article on STV News. Listen to this. This is a pretty interesting one. A masked dad accidentally tried to rob his son at knife point. I laugh because, not because it's funny, but really, I guess he thought it was somebody else. Uh, The desperate dad said if he did not initially realize his son was the teenager withdrawing money from the ATM, he wouldn't have robbed him. The 45-year-old pounced at an ATM in Glasgow, Scotland, on uh, November of last year. The 70-year-old victim had the cash machine close to his home withdraw 10 pounds. He saw a hooded man dressed in dark clothing with a... With a uh, mask on his face lurking nearby. The prosecutor, Kerry Stevens, told the Glasgow Sheriff's Court that he put his card in his pocket, took the cash from the ATM machine, turned left, and something against him brushed against the left side of his face. He was pinned up by uh, against the wall by his neck. The boy felt a large kitchen knife pressed against his face. The accused stated, give it to me, give it to me now. The victim instantly identified his dad from the voice and his eyes. The stunned boy said, are you serious? Do you know who this is? The attacker replied, I don't give an F who it is. (laughs) The victim pulled down his mask, revealing the dad's face and said, what are you doing? The man responded, I'm sorry, I'm desperate. (laughs) His son fled the scene and told his grandparents of the ordeal before police were alerted. The robber was later arrested at his home and initially denied being the culprit. Wow. Talk about inflation hitting worldwide. But he later stated, I don't know that it was him. Uh, I didn't know it was him at the cash machine. Uh, I would have not done it if there was enough time for it. That's what he said. Uh, He pled guilty to a charge of attempting to rob the victim. The man also admitted possession of a knife in a public place. Edward Gilroy, defending the court, uh, said his mother, brother, and son are all extremely angry at him. Sheriff Andrew Kuby jailed the dad for 26 months, sentencing him... uh, was the sheriff saying, this is an extraordinary set of events. Listen, I can tell you, and this is a story out of Glasgow, Scotland. I can tell you that I have never been through this. I don't even know what it's like to keep even commiserate with this. I've never been mugged by my dad, but I have had a couple of fist fights with my dad. I can tell you that. My dad had a brain injury and had an early onset of dementia. And frequently would just look at me and go, what are you doing in my house? And would kick me out. And if I didn't leave, he would attempt to beat the crap out of me. And he was 80 years old and he would raise his hands. And and I've taken quite a few punches in the face, quite a few glasses that were snapped in half. Uh, I could hold my own against the old man, but let me tell you, the old man was tough. But this, never anything. I've never been mugged by my dad. Anyway, straight ahead, we're going to talk about radicalism with probably one arguably one of the best New York Post columnists out there Carol Markowitz and her new book so don't go anywhere give us a call 833-4-VALDEZ I am Rich Valdez we'll be right back it's America at Night Live from the city that never sleeps. 
17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late-night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. If you want to join this conversation, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number, 833-482-5337. And uh, federal regulators have seized Silicon Valley Bank in the largest bank failure since the Great Recession. We'll get to that in the midnight hour. Plus, the new January sex footage is creating a legal headache for the Department of Justice prosecutors. Yeah, that's to say the least. Uh, Senator Manchin has announced his opposition to Biden's pick for the top role at the Interior Department. And who cares? Nobody cares about the Interior Department. And if you do, give me a call because I haven't met anybody in my probably 20 years of observing politics. I've never met anybody who even mentioned the Department of the Interior. So anyway, I want to talk about wokeism and radicalism and a new book called Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. It's by Carol Markowitz from the New York Post. If you haven't read her columns, shame on you. You don't know what you're missing. But the book, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation, is out, and you got to check out uh, Amazon to you know, get a copy, get two copies, you know, give one away, do what you got to do. But Carol Markowitz, welcome to the program. Hi, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for staying up. I know it's not always easy to do late night radio, (laughs) but um, it it is a pleasure to be with you because uh, A, I've enjoyed your columns over the years and B, uh, this is a topic. You know, I have got two kids. I've got a 17-year-old yeah. and a 22-year-old, and I can tell you I've I've been in um, doing overtime here trying to protect them from getting indoctrinated, right. and, and not everybody does that, right? It's hard to, to kind of indoctrinate-proof your kids. Uh, let's talk it's about the book. Hard. Yeah, it's very hard to indoctrinate-proof your kids, and it's also very hard to keep them apart from the indoctrinators. Uh, So my Mm -hmm. co-author and I, Bethany Mandel, have varied paths that we've taken. She's a homeschooling mom of six. I have three kids, two in public, one in private. And we offer different solutions to parents on how to best protect their children from this virus, which it really is. It has marched through our institutions, taken over organizations and schools, um, it's a big part of licensing of doctors and of teachers, and it's uh, really just targeting our children for this woke conformity that it pushes. And protecting your kids is really hard. The The truth is that I hear from parents all the time who tell me things like, I've lost my child when they went to college, or I, I don't know how to talk to my kids anymore. They're They're angry all the time about things like the climate, and I don't know how to get through to them. And so all of that is really terrifying, and we hope to provide a roadmap for parents to get to their kids. Let's talk about that a little bit, because 
I don't think enough people realize how difficult it is. And and maybe you're, if you're in a part of the country where you, you're not dealing with this, God bless you. But, you know, uh, in New York and on the West Coast, I'm sure everybody's dealing with this. Uh, everybody's children are facing wokeism at alarming rates. Carol Markowitz, what are some of the best practices that you could recommend or that you've taken yourself with uh, protecting yeah. your kids? Well, so one thing is after being a lifelong New Yorker, we moved to Florida last year. And that was in large part to protect our children. A lot of it was COVID based, but a lot of the COVID policies were birthed in this wokeism. Like you weren't allowed to question things that you knew were crazy. Like kids weren't going to school. Meanwhile, the rest of society was completely open. Um, So there were a lot of really insane things that happened during COVID that made us feel like we couldn't live in New York anymore and that we didn't trust our neighbors. They, they, none of them were speaking up. Um, they, a lot of them were handling their own kids. Like they would get them tutors or pods or move to their beach house or something like that, but they wouldn't speak up for the kids whose um, schools were closed and who couldn't afford to do any of that. So we saw this wokeism really take hold during COVID and we thought we have to get our kids out of this. So we moved to Florida, but it's interesting that you say that, you know, there's areas that you might not be dealing with it. I don't think that's true. I think every area is dealing with it. I think that Mm. parents just don't want to face that. Uh, For a lot of people, they feel like secure in their red town or their red city or their red state. And they think, oh, this is not happening in my school. You know, they'll, they'll, I I say this a lot, but they'll see the libs of TikTok videos and think, oh, good. That's not happening at my school. But right. just because your teacher doesn't have a TikTok account where they're posting this nonsense doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means that you don't know about it. And so I would say to parents, even in red states, and, and to be fair, I feel a lot more comfortable and secure about my kid's childhood in Florida than I did in Brooklyn. But just because I'm more confident they're not getting the full-on woke indoctrination in school doesn't mean that I'm not on alert for it because it's everywhere. That's an excellent point. And I, I agree with you 100 percent. There might be people that are in, in red states that feel secure and they're not dealing with it like others are in other places. But it doesn't mean it's not happening. And I think that's so important because every little bit of this counts. And, and you're right. There's school boards all across the country that are that have been corrupted by this. And right. uh, and it, it, it seems to be getting worse, not better, while more and more people realize, oh, wow, maybe I should go to my school board meeting. Oh, wow. This is kind of crazy. Oh, wow. No age drag queen shows. I mean, you name (laughs) it. There's so many things happening. But at the same time, I feel like while we're on uh, hyper mode being vigilant, they're on hyper mode indoctrinating. They are. And that's why there's no time to rest right now. This is going to be a fight and it's going to be a fight that lasts a while. Um, you know, I'd love to tell parents like, oh, you just, you know, you, you, can, you can pull your kid out of school and send them to private school or to, to charter school. And, th- and that's it. You're done. But that's, that's, that's not the case. These private schools and charter schools, they're also woke. They all come from the same teacher's colleges where they're learning Marxist thought. So the thing is that these teacher colleges are indoctrinating the teachers first. And then those teachers disperse throughout the country and they're in your deep red towns and they're teaching kids you know, gender ideology in second grade and saying like, maybe you don't, maybe you, maybe you were born a girl, but doesn't mean you have to stay that way. And they're teaching, you know, CRT. When we talk about CRT, critical race theory, 
you know, the, the left will say, oh, we don't teach critical race theory. Yeah, you don't teach critical race theory. You use critical race theory in your teachings. You teach right. math through the lens of critical race theory. You teach everything through the lens of critical race theory. And critical race theory says that there's an oppressor and then there's an oppressed and divides people up into these categories. And so, you know, I just, we saw this happening everywhere. And the concern for us, so again, my, my homeschooling co-author, she'll say, well, she pulled her kids out of culture. You know, she pulled her kids out of public schools. She homeschools them. She pre-watches all of their movies. She makes sure that not, their books are, um, you know, completely free of any influence. Um, but she'll say, I can't not take them to the pediatrician. So no matter how much you want to protect your kids or how much you think you can pull them out of society, there's always that wokeness that's going to that's gonna catch up with you and in, in places like your pediatrician. Folks, we're on with Carol Markowitz, uh, columnist at the New York Post. She's the author of Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. And uh, I couldn't think of a better title for this book because this is actually happening. And if you've got kids, you totally know. If you don't have kids, learn this because it's actually mm-hmm. happening. Don't move a muscle. We're coming right back with Carol Markowitz. Our phone number is 833-4-VALDES, and that's Valdez with an S. I'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. The left is waging an all-out battle on the American family, particularly the youngest members. And our guest is Carol Markowitz. You know her from the New York Post. She's the author of the book, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. And this, to me, is of particular importance because once you get a kid while they're young, you know, then you've got to work hard to get them away, right? They, they've become a part of the left-wing movement. Carol Markowitz, how do you recommend parents fight that? You're absolutely right. And, and that's why they're doing it the way that they're doing it. We open up this book with a, a history chapter, and we look at totalitarian societies of the past. I was born in the Soviet Union. I had grown up hearing stories of how children were were taught to be little activists in in the communist regime. And it's not just the Soviet Union. It's a a lot of other countries. Um, China, even today, will push a main melody in their their arts where all their movies and, and songs and shows all have the same kind of political messaging. And we're heading in that exact same direction where everything is aimed to have one main message out for all of us. And Kids are the most susceptible to it. You know, you have when you tell a child something, they believe you because they, they innately might trust adults. And the adults in their lives are supposed to teach them how to think and not what to think. But, of course, we now have just this pattern of indoctrination that happens. And I'm really worried about the country in this way. I think that once this heads in this terrible direction where kids are just captured by this ideological fervor, um, I think it's very, very hard to get them back, and you're, you're, you know, completely right about that. We also write about um, Nazi youth um, in, in the book, uh, in the history chapter, and the mm. way that, you know, the the Nazi youth were taught to 
be anti-Semitic. And they carried that throughout their lives. That generation was so much more Jew-hating than the generation before or after it because they were indoctrinated when they were young. And it's just, it, it's a really um, terrible road that we're on. You know, we suggest things to parents on how to handle and, and what to do uh, throughout the book because we believe in solutions and we believe in providing people with ideas on what, on what they can do. But the main thing is you have to know that this is your child and you have to stand up for them whenever you have the opportunity. A lot of people are afraid to do that, and that's worrisome to me. Um, I think that when you get to a point where you aren't aren't ready to fight for your own kid, you're, you're going to lose them. And I know that that sounds harsh, but that's what ends up happening. If, if you don't tell your kids what your values are, if you don't show them what the values are and you don't live those values and you don't you know, continually talk about it and have conversations, somebody else is going to fill in their values and, and you will be lost. 100%. Carol Markowitz is the author uh, of the book we're discussing, and it's called Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. And, and I'll agree with you. Listen, I, I made it a purpose in my life to teach my two daughters that uh, what I knew, but I didn't want mm-hmm. them to, to necessarily subscribe to what I believed. Right. It was always like, here, here's what I believe. You you do you. And, and, and that's what I've done. And they've made their own opinions. I've, you can ask them under oath if you want gun mm-hmm. to their head. I, I've never told them what to believe, but I've always wanted them to know the truth so that they were equipped when they got into a situation where somebody was telling them stuff you were talking about, you know, Jews are bad. Yeah. America's bad. White people are bad. You know, Hispanics are mm-hmm. bad, whatever the case is. And, and I, and I, I feel like I've been somewhat successful with that, but I really wanted them to, to make their own way. But you look at a situation like this today, and I think it's important that everybody teach their kids whatever it is you think that's right, because ultimately they have to make a choice and they're going to be taught the opposite of whatever it is that right. they've learned from you uh, in, in public school, in, in public university, wherever they end up, uh, even with their friends and, and in colloquial settings. And it's a, it's a shame, but that's that's the norm. The norm is hate America. The norm is Mm -hmm. hate Jews. The norm is white people are bad. And it's a shame, but that seems to be the norm. And but for books like yours, where you're teaching parents, uh, at least informing parents what's going on and what they need to be aware about. I think kids are just, you know, kind of on their own to make a decision. So, you know, as much as I want to be neutral in my children's lives, I have to be kind of overbearing with Mm -hmm. teaching them the truth. Whether, you know, I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm not trying to indoctrinate them. I really want them to be their own people, but yeah. they have to know the truth. And, and I think your book is aimed at parents, and, and I think it's brilliant because parents really need to know this because it wasn't always the case that you had to teach your kids about, you know, um, I don't know, transgenderism, right? That wasn't right, always a right. thing, <laughs> right? It was kind of like, yeah, boys are yeah. boys, girls are girls. Now all of a sudden it's like, well, hold on. The teacher says boys are girls and girls are boys, but I'm <laughs> telling you that, you know, right. it doesn't really work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's really the thing is that, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to indoctrinate their own kids either, right? You don't want to force them right. into thinking the way that you think. The problem with that becomes that the other side does want to force them into thinking how they think, and they they absolutely will indoctrinate them. So I think I I get that people don't want to, you know, my my joke always was like, I don't care if my kids are conservatives, I just care if they're Dallas Cowboys fans. 
And, <laughs> you know, I, I think that because we're, we're a Dallas Cowboys fan family, but I think that we have to progress beyond that because if we don't tell our kids what we believe and why and really stand firm in that, um, I think that it, it you, you leave open the door for somebody else to do it. And I know that I, I talk to parents all the time, so I know that this is tougher than it sounds. I, I know I say like, oh, tell your kids what your values are. But parents will say, like, I don't want to talk about that with my kids. I don't want to. And it makes me uncomfortable. And the thing is, if you're uncomfortable, they'll feel it and they'll 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 look for it elsewhere. Um, the transgender thing, you know, my my whole life, I was like, you know, people can do whatever they want and I don't care. But then they came to the kids sure. and it was impossible to look away. I don't care what grownups do. I don't care what grownups, you know, think they are or, or how they dress or whatever. Um, but for a child who is very susceptible to a grown-up's opinion uh, for, for them to be influenced into, you know, potentially trying on a different identity. I, I, I find mm. all of that to be something that needs to be stopped immediately. There was a story recently um, out of Long Island where a teacher started calling a little girl by boy pronouns. And it wasn't until that this little girl started drawing pictures of a little, of a little girl that said, I want to kill myself that the parents found out about it. This, this teacher had transitioned this kid at school without telling the parents. And what's really creepy to me, I mean, all of this is really creepy. What was really scary to me is that this happened in a red enclave on Long Island. It happened right. in, a red, in, in a red hamlet, in a red town, in a red county. And yeah, if it's happening there, it's happening everywhere. And parents really need to be vigilant. Hundred percent, and I actually have the article right in front of me. I was planning on talking about it at midnight. Uh, it, it, it's a scary thing. It was a fifth grade girl, and the teacher mm -hmm. started forcing this child to go through male uh, male name and pronouns, a mm -hmm. and it just makes me think. I mean, I'm probably liable to get arrested if that were to happen to me. But <laughs> it, it just think it, it makes me think. Yeah. My God, all these peaceful people that aren't crazy Puerto Ricans like me. <laughs> what are they going to do? Right. And, and, and I feel so badly for them because again, my kids are kind of big. They're 17, they're 22. They can yeah. make a cogent argument, but there's a lot of people that have five-year-olds and nine-year-olds. And that's why right. we have to rely on people like you, Carol Markowitz, to write this book, <laughs> Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. Uh, Carol Markowitz, in the moments we have left, let everybody know how they could find the book. Um, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you buy books. You can buy Stolen Youth. It's by myself and Bethany Mandel. Outstanding. Carol, thank you for being with us. I appreciate thank it. Godspeed so to you thank and you. the book. My pleasure. And, folks, there's more to come straight ahead. We're going to continue our conversation. 833-4-VALDEZ is the number. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here. I am Rich Valdez. It's America at Night. America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, the phone number 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. And we're talking about the threat tag that was created after the Supreme Court's Dobbs uh, ruling that shifted the focus to pro-lifers. And it, it's, um, 
it's an unfortunate thing that the Supreme Court or the rather the FBI, the DOJ, are going after people based on their faith, whether they're Christians uh, or Catholics or what have you. But that lamentably is the case. And it's a shame. But here to help us make sense of it and to discuss it is the Reverend James Harden. He's the CEO of Compass Care. Now, you might remember uh, when there was a pro-life crisis pregnancy center that was attacked and vandalized, um, I guess it was last year, that we had Reverend Harden on, and he's with us again to discuss this topic. Reverend James Harden, welcome to the program, sir. Rich, thanks for having me back. It's an honor. You bet. So let's talk about this because we've learned a lot in the interim. In between the last time I spoke with you and now, uh, we've talked about a lot of things, not the least of which is how the FBI had a memo out where they were focusing on what they called rad-trad, radical traditionalist Catholics that went to Latin mass. They're looking at people that are pro-life, pro-life Christians. They have a threat tag that was created. I mean, I laugh in an almost a nervous kind of way uh, because I think this is absolutely uh, ridiculous, but it's a real thing that's going on, James Harden. It, it is a real thing. And what, what, we're, what we're seeing is a pattern of behavior from the DOJ and the FBI and other essentially what I call bad government actors uh, that essentially targets pro-life people and activity. You know, we've seen a wave, a crime wave that was sparked, a pro-abortion terrorist crime wave. Uh, you see it, you know, when, when uh, Roe versus Wade was reversed, the, the leak of the case on May 2nd uh, essentially caused Jane's revenge, this pro-abortion terrorist group, to raise her ugly head and starts uh, literally mm. attacking uh, pro-life pregnancy centers like ours in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, that that wasn't it. That wasn't all. They, they, they've they gone on to attack 250 other pro-life entities, and you've got uh, collusion or it appears to be some kind of collusion or conspiracy with other, uh, you know, people. You know, specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's vilifying pregnancy centers, saying that we mm -hmm. we're harming women. I'm thinking about Hillary Clinton, who's saying that uh, pregnancy centers are like Al Qaeda and Middle Eastern terrorists. I'm thinking, you know, of these kinds of comments. Not to mention the fact you've got the weaponization of, of legislation in places like New York against pregnancy centers, uh, investigating uh, us instead of the the, the, the terrorists. So. Um, You've got so when when FBI Special Agent Garrett O'Boyle came out with whistleblower testimony out of the FBI last Friday, uh, saying, "Hey, uh, when when the case came out um, overturning Roe, uh, you know, on June 24th, they they you, you mentioned this, Rich. They had they created a threat tag, a new threat tag, which uh, is for what they call pro-life adherence. Anybody that adheres to pro-life beliefs is what the FBI uh, considers a threat." And then uh, he's like, what, what is that all about? Uh, this isn't pro-life people aren't the ones that are doing the attacks. It's these pro-choice people who are who are pro protesting or otherwise threatening violence, he said. But um, then he, he said that they wanted the, F the FBI wanted them to look into what they called pregnancy centers. Now think about that. <laughs> We're, well, th this is the, the, the investigative power of the DOJ and the FBI focusing their efforts on the victims, not on the actual criminals. Uh, so nine months now, nine months, here we are, nine months later, 
uh, of pro-abortion attacks on pro-life groups that have gone virtually unanswered by the D- DOJ and the FBI. Uh, the, the, the attacks on pro-life groups you know, fit the pattern of what I call Maoist Antifa direct action terror. I say that mm-hmm. because those are direct action is their word. They use direct action um, to uh, essentially you know, uh, violently attack uh, people that they, they think represent Christianity and capitalism. Now, I say that because uh, Christianity and capitalism, in their view, are the foundational uh, concepts and principles to current civilized order. And uh, they, the Antifa essentially is uh, a, a, a communist Marxist endeavor uh, whose, whose primary goal is to undermine the current global civilized order. And that's what they're doing in America right now, and that's why they're targeting uh, Christian entities like pregnancy centers. They say, well, it doesn't make any sense. Why pregnancy centers? You know, I, I, the, the, from their perspective, pregnancy centers uh, you know, are, are, are part of the capitalistic system because we encourage women to have their babies. And what that does is makes them a permanent underclass, enslaving them uh, financially because they now have to raise this child. We're forcing our mm-hmm. religious beliefs on her, saying that the child is made of the image of God and deserving of blessing and protection, just like anybody else. This is, in their mind, a Christian capitalistic institution that needs to be dismantled and destroyed. So why is the DOJ not doing anything about it? Why are they, furthermore, why are they going on the attack? And, you know, I've said, look, they've, they've been slow walking this for, for so, so long, but you just, all you got to do is look at who's responsible in the DOJ. Somebody's deprioritizing these investigations, Rich. So if you look at who's responsible for these investigations, it's the civil rights division within the DOJ. Who's responsible for the civil rights division? It's Kristen Clark. Kristen Clark. Nobody's saying anything about Kristen Clark, but she is vehemently and very publicly opposed to pro-life pregnancy. Just look at her Twitter feed. This woman is, is, is a BLM supporter. She's a defund the police supporter. Uh, she, she represents the pattern of Antifa. So I'm thinking, you know, you scratch your head and you got to wonder, I mean, a, a, a responsible investigator and researcher ought to be, uh, you know, saying, look, the pattern in the DOJ and the FBI seems to fit uh, the, 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 the goals and trajectory of Antifa, Maoist Antifa. What, so, uh, you know, I, this, is, this is very, dis, uh, you know, I, not only am I disgruntled, but I think we've got, we've got a serious insurgency that's going on, and, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's possible that it's infiltrated the upper echelons of government. This is a scary proposition, Reverend James Harden, uh, CEO of Compass Care, and check them out at compasscarecommunity.com. I, I think that this is one of those things where I, I'm glad you're bringing it up because I talk about stuff like this on the radio, but I feel like people just dismiss it sometimes and, and take it for, you know, oh, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. No, it's not mm-hmm. supposed to be that way. And it doesn't mean that it has to be the way I want it to be. It just has to be fair, right? The FBI yeah. shouldn't be choosing sides. I wouldn't want the FBI to be on my side or on their side. I want the FBI to be neutral and just say, hey, look, we're going to look into this for whatever it's yeah. worth, right? Because I know, and I'm pretty sure you know, that we're not bombing anything. Right. It's them that do the firebombs. It's them that do the vandalism. It's them that break the windows and destroy places. So I'm happy for them to be fair because I know I'm always on the winning side. But this is where we are. We're going to continue this conversation with Reverend James Harden, CEO of Compass Care. Uh, Straight ahead, our phone number, if you want to join the conversation and be heard tonight, live and national, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDES. And that's Valdez with an S. We're coming right back. 
This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S. Uh, Join the conversation here at our program, 866-482-5337. Our guest is Reverend James Harden, and we're talking about uh, all of the crazy that's going on, and there's plenty of crazy to go around. There was an FBI threat tag created after the uh, Dobbs decision that shifted the focus on pro-lifers, according to a whistleblower. What's your initial reaction to this whistleblower, uh, FBI Special Agent Garrett O'Boyle from the Wichita Resident Agency in Kansas City? My... Uh initial response was yeah i knew that uh, <laughs> we we you know we i, I i'm gonna I'll give you some inside information i was asked by the fbi after ted cruz came out with an open letter uh to fbi director christopher ray along with 39 other senators and congressmen that was on october 14th the fbi reached out and contacted me the first time since june 24th June 24th, as you know, was the day that the Dobbs case came out overturning Roe versus Wade. Yeah, they, uh, he, he, he demanded to know why uh, the FBI was abdicating their duty to uh, investigate. This was on October 14th. We've been saying it. We've been saying it since uh, since since June. And the FBI asked me to stop uh, stop you know beating them up in the media. Uh, and I, they, they said when that letter came out, they said we want to meet. Can we can we talk? Please shut I up. I said, sure. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? They said, well, would you back off on the media? Just back off on the media. And, and, and in, res- and, in, in, in response, you know, uh, you know, in exchange for that, they want to make a deal with us. They're, they're concerned about their reputation more than they are about the investigations. Wow. And I, you know, I, it's just, you know, absolutely. So, so the, the, they finally let me see the video surveillance of the crime. Think about that. I haven't even. It's been 130 days at that point. Is this the crime days. that to your one of your centers? Yeah, right. And they they hadn't let me see it up until that point. They brought me in, and and you ever you you know how when you're in a group and you're having a conversation with a group of people, and you know when when one person is talking, the whole group is looking at that person, and then the conversation shifts to another person. Everybody looks at that person. That's not right. what happened at the FBI. That's not what happened when they brought me in to look at this video surveillance for the first time. Um, they, the, they were looking at me, every single one of them. This was not a conversation. They were observing me. And I thought that was the strangest phenomenon. But by that time, Rich, they had already made the threat tag. By that time, they, they had already mm. said, look into these pregnancy centers. So, you know, I was being investigated. I, I probably still am. I don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, this, this situation is deplorable. Um, you know, and, you know, you look at uh, Merrick Garland and the, the recent uh, testimony that he gave before the Senate Judiciary Committee last week, uh, he, he was perjuring himself. I, you know, he's saying, well, we can't we can't arrest these, these, these people. There's all these crimes against pregnancy centers are happening, you know, at night and in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hold on. I just want to back up before we beat up Merrick Garland, because I want to take my time with that. Uh, I just want to make sure I had you on our program, I don't know, six or seven months ago, because Compass Care operates a pregnancy crisis center in Buffalo. And you guys were attacked and firebombed. And at that point, did the FBI have you into their office to discuss this? No. No, the FBI, but they did have uh, you in when you went on programs like mine and others to say, hey, what the heck is going on? Then they did bring you in. That's exactly right. It's because of programs like yours. I'm not kidding you, Rich. This is exactly how it works for the FBI. They don't talk to you unless they get, they're get they getting it on the teeth from the media. Wow. That's, that's disgusting, honestly. Uh, it, it makes me think. I mean, it, does everybody just go by popular opinion? It's um, it, it's unfortunate that you could firebomb, you know, any business, uh, let alone yours, and and I guess get away with it or whatever. And they become concerned and want to add a threat tag to you. And so I understand it. The, the threat tag is threats to SCOTUS twenty twenty two. When when you make some waves in the media, then it's like, hold on, you're making us look bad. Would you please stop? I mean, honestly, I I understand what you're saying. I'm a big boy, but uh, I just really don't believe it. But it's apparently true. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely uh, ridiculous how how the FBI is operating. And uh, you know, we, we, we have to, you know, be vigilant and, and keep the pressure on, you know, we, the, the, we found, we, we, were, we were trying to figure out, well, who's doing this to us? I mean, who, who's, what, what's the, why is there such a concerted effort? Why does this seem to be so organized? And, and why, where's there such vitriol? I mean, pregnancy centers are fairly innocuous. We provide free medical care and comprehensive community support to women who are facing unplanned pregnancies. That's, how is that a, how is that a bad thing? Why is yeah, that a Christopher Ray ain't pregnant. Know, what does he care? Yeah. And we don't, we don't even, we, we're trying to ask, we're just asking who, who are these people? Who are they and why are they doing this? And so the FBI wouldn't respond. The local police don't know. And the FBI gets involved and they slow walk the investigations. And so we had to hire our own private investigators, right? You, you know this. So wow. we, what we found, what we found was, yeah, yeah. What we found was they, that it's Antifa. Antifa. Jane's Revenge is a front for Antifa. And what they do sure. is they recruit. They recruit disaffected left-wing extremist groups like transgender people, um, uh, the BLM people, uh, extreme environmentalists, and pro-abortion, uh, you know, extremists. And then they 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 foment violence within those groups uh, and, and embed uh, violent aggressors within them to to, uh, to destabilize. So uh, you know the F. So back in 2017, uh, the there was a there was a leak of, of information from the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to the Politico. You probably remember this. This is 2017, and they labeled uh, Maoist Antifa activity as domestic terrorism. But so far, after over 250 attacks, and it's it's been verified that this is Antifa. The DOJ refuses to call it domestic terror, and they refuse to call it Antifa. Mm-hmm. What? What? Why? What changed? Well, the the only thing that changed in terms of this pattern here is the leadership of the DOJ and those in charge of the DOJ, namely the Biden administration. And I and said, Merrick look, this is, and Merrick Garland and Kristen Clark. And so I, mm. I, I said, I came out, I came out several months ago and I said, we need to uh, put the spotlight of investigation squarely on the FBI, the federal bureau of investigation, because we, the, the, we need to, and, and the DOJ and possibly even defund them, dismantle them and rebuild them. Well, Biden, don't you know, Biden comes out today saying, I heard that uh, somebody, get this, wants to defund the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, Man. you know, and now, now, of course, look, this is, this is a murderous rampage that Antifa is on and they're, they're running under the cover of Jane's revenge and, and women's reproductive rights. And J- now you got Jane Fonda coming out uh, today saying that uh, pro-life politicians need to be murdered. You probably saw that. Yeah, Jane's we played revenge that audio came- earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's consistent with Jane's revenge. Jane's revenge came out in a, in a communique saying they're going to promise to escalate attacks from firebombing of praying centers saying tomorrow it might be your cars, your homes, or even your lives. And they, they threatened us saying, look, if you don't shut down after the firebombing, if you don't shut down, next time it's not going to be so easily cleaned up as fire and graffiti. This is a murder threat. These mm-hmm. people are serious. Yet there's no threat tag on them. Folks, our guest is Reverend James Harden. He's the CEO of Compass Care. Uh, you could check them out at compasscarecommunity.com. He's with us for another segment. Don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Reverend James Harden. He's the CEO of Compass Care, and their website is compasscarecommunity.com. Reverend Harden, I want you to let everybody that's listening know how they could uh, support the work you're doing, how they could keep up with you, uh, because obviously you've got your finger on the pulse. You know what's going on. The FBI is following you around uh, to figure out what's going on and only pays attention when you're making waves in the media. Let everybody know what's going on. Yeah, thanks, Rich. Uh, so if, if anybody wants to know, uh, you know, stay up to, uh, up to speed on what's happening, we update the website daily at compasscarecommunity.com. That's compasscarecommunity.com. And uh, is that where they could potentially um, make a donation or support the work? Or is there another website or is that where they could oh. follow you ideally? Yeah, that's uh, so, yes, they could. Anybody that was interested would be interested in supporting the work and learning more about how Compass Care is helping uh, save women and, and babies from abortion. They can they can look there as well as give there. There's a donate button on that webpage. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you very much. You bet. And again, check out the website CompassCareCommunity.com. Uh, James Harden, I want to thank you for being with us. Thanks for keeping us up to speed with what's going on in your neck of the woods. And keep up the good work. My pleasure. Thank you. God bless. You bet. All right, folks. Now, uh, in the next hour, we're going to get to what's going on with the cartel members. Five more cartel members were arrested, and uh, we are (laughs) going to discuss how the House of Representatives voted to declassify the COVID intel. Uh, Plus, a man killed a sex offender with an antler. Yeah, I should have left that hanging. But uh, we'll get to that straight ahead. It's 833-4-VALDEZ on the phone number. And it's America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Don't go anywhere. Open phone America. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night 
with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late-night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the program. It's Open Phone America. This is the tradition that was started by the late, great Larry King, continued by Jim Bohannon, and uh, we will continue it here. And let me say that it's an honor to, to be with you guys straight across America. Our telephone number uh, is 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. And... I uh, I teased a bunch of stories in the at the end of the last hour, and there there was a lot of stories, and there still is. I mean, I probably won't have time to get through all of them. I mean, you got an alligator ter- tearing through an iron fence, a judge using slavery laws to decide the fate of frozen embryos in a divorce case, artificial turf potentially linked to cancer deaths of Phillies players from the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, thieves that were caught while charging their getaway car. Guess what? It was a Tesla. <laughs> I hope I could get to these all. We did talk about the dad mugging the son earlier and uh, a man killed a sex offender with an antler. There's plenty to discuss here. But the cartel members, man, uh, we, I want to get to that one. Uh, we have five more cartel members that were arrested uh, as a result of the the case uh, with um, the people that were engaging in medical tourism. And one of the things that I'll I'll bring up from that is that there was a case in New York years ago, and just yesterday, one of the killers uh, who, who murdered a young man named Junior in a bodega who um, had nothing to do with anything. They, did, they killed this kid, you know, for, for no reason. Uh, he was acquitted. Right, they they dismissed his case, and now he's being tried again. It was a first degree murder case, and now they're bringing a second degree murder case. And, and what what's concerning to me about it? I mean, obviously, it is what it is. Uh, they said that it was too harmful to him because he was too young; that you know he couldn't be in jail forever and ever in his entire life. So whatever. So they're gonna retry the case. But it, it's interesting to me that. We have uh, this type of leniency towards killers. We have this type of leniency towards uh, those that are committing these crimes. And you, you've got organized criminals that are out there doing their thing. You've got organized criminals that work in Congress that are doing their things with zero accountability. And it, it just seems to be spiraling out of control worse and worse each time. So we're going to get to that cartel case in a moment. We're going to get to the rest of these stories. Um, in particular, the one where the individual uh, called, uh, excuse me, killed somebody with with an antler. And listen to this. Levi Axtell, 27 years old, was charged with second-degree murder in the death of Lawrence Scully, 77 years old, who was beaten to death Wednesday at his home in Grand Marais. Now, he goes on. This man was charged on Friday with fatally beating an elderly man previously convicted of child sexual assault, who he believed had stalked his young daughter in the past. Levi Axtell, 27 years old, was charged with second-degree murder in the death of Lawrence Scully, who was 77 years old, and he was beaten to death on Wednesday with 
what appears to be antlers, moose antlers, and a shovel. According to the criminal complaint filed Friday, Axtell killed Scully with a shovel and moose antlers, then drove to the Cook County Sheriff's Office and confessed about it. Not for anything. It's probably something I would do. Um, hypothetically speaking, of course. At a video hearing on Friday, Axtell's bail was set at a million dollars. The defense attorney, Daniel Shaw, he said, excuse me, Dennis Shaw, he noted during the hearing that Axtell had no serious criminal history until now and his long-term ties to Grand Marais made him a minimal flight risk. Axtell remains jailed in Cook County. His next appearance is scheduled for April 10th. In 2018, Axtell alleged that Scully was stalking his 22-month-old daughter and other children in his van, which he parked near her Grand Marais daycare. Listen, a 22-month-old kid that's literally under two? Uh, yeah, you better believe I'm coming at you with everything I've got, including antlers. Axtell sought an order of protection, which was granted, but then dismissed within several weeks, according to court records. Back in 1979, that's a year after I was born, Scully was convicted in Kennebec County, Minnesota, of sexually assaulting a six-year-old girl, according to Cook County Sheriff Pat Eliason. He was released from prison in 1982. On Wednesday, Axtell arrived at the sheriff's office covered in blood, and put his hands on his head and said he murdered Scully with a shovel, according to Friday's criminal complaint. Deputies found Scully in his home, obviously dead from the serious nature of his head wounds, and this was what was included in the charging documents. Axtell told the uh, law enforcement he hit Scully 15 to 20 times with a shovel, then finished him off with a large moose antler. He said he was known to Scully for a long time and believed to have had sexually offended against children in the past and that he had observed Scully parked in the vehicle at locations where children were present and believed he would re-offend. Eliason said Friday that he'd... um, There had been recent allegations against Scully, but an investigation didn't reveal anything. Most of the reports were regarding harassment. Wow. Let me tell you, listen, uh, I hate a a pedophile as much as the next guy, but uh, if you don't have that conclusive proof, boy, do we have a problem here, Houston. You can't go killing people, bashing them in the head with a shovel, and then killing them with a moose antler. Uh, unless you know that this is actually the guy that did the right, the wrong thing, right? And you've got the right info. So I don't know. We're going to get to your calls and more on that and all the other topics we have lined up. Uh, I see we got some people on hold. We got Kim in Shields, Michigan. We're going to get to you momentarily. Don't go anywhere. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. 833-482-5337. It's America's late night live national town hall meeting. You get to sound off right here on America at night. It's open phone America. 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-482-5337. 
833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, 833-482-5337. Let us go to Kim in Shields, Michigan, KDKA Online. Kim, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Thank you, Rich. Um, Yeah, in regards to your guest, James, that was on and talking about he was being labeled a threat tag and and, Mm -hmm. uh, these you know, by the FBI and stuff. Um, these agencies need to be defunded. When President Trump, God willing, if he gets in, he needs he and the Republicans need to start defunding um, a lot of, like we have 17 different spy agencies. Uh, that's what I heard of one of my shows about five years ago, 17. That's like the DIA, the NSA, the CIA, you know, um, they just need to defund them and they need to move a lot of this stuff back to the states. Our forefathers didn't anticipate a Department of Education and this stuff coming down from on high by the attorney general to the teachers unions about you will teach. What's that? that what's that three letter thing they're teaching? CRT, um, critical race theory. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no accountability. Now that the 41,000 hours of J6 video are released to Tucker, stuff is coming out where uh, just two I can think of off the top of my head. Roseanne Boylan, who was murdered by a female Mm. police officer that day, and another lady was beaten terribly. She was in the video. Um, And these were two women police. There is no accountability. And they were either Washington, D.C. police or Capitol police. I don't know who they called in, but this 41,000 hours of video that they confiscated from people, this is going to go a long way to prove what really happened on January 6th. And what do you think? Um, I'll tell you another one, Medicaid. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger because the states get reimbursed by the feds for a good share of it. Move that back to the states. If if you want to be grandiose and give all kinds of, you know, luxurious benefits, um, you know, move it back to the states. Let them take that out of their budget. They can keep the IRS because that's the federal tax agency, but they can get rid of the Department of Education, They all these other police agencies, move them back to the states where the, where the people have some control. What do you think? Yeah. So, you know, Medicaid does work that way in many ways. Uh, it's, it's kind of um, partially from the state, partially from the government in a block grant or whatnot. And uh, I know in New Jersey, they, they kind of expanded it a few years ago in other states. They haven't expanded it. it, it it's an interesting thing, but I agree with you. I think the states ultimately have to have uh, total control here, uh, or at least the, the majority of the control. And if they want to have some support from the from the federal government, that's fine. But states need to have home rule. And, and even 
more locally, right? Uh, just like schools, right? You know, I'm grateful that my town decides the school policy for the schools in my town, not the county, not the state, not the federal government, because these things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis that affect us greatly uh, should be dealt with by the people that are having that effect, right? And that and that receive that effect. So I think uh, you, you make a brilliant point, Kim, that it's important that people are involved and and involved in exactly what's happening in the governance of where they live. Uh, that's Kim in Shields, Michigan, listening on KDKA Online. I want to continue uh, with our buddy Jeff from Lansing, Michigan on WILS. Lance, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Well, thanks for taking my call, Rich. I think that's Rich Valdez with an S, by the way, if I have that Yes, correct. sir. <laughs> you got that right. Okay. I, I, can I ask you a favor? Maybe. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I don't care what you hear and um, uh, what you read in the papers. I don't own any moose antlers. I don't, I don't <laughs> care what they say. Neither do I. Neither do I. Only deer. Go ahead. Okay, that's that's just it, Rich. I was like, oh, sometimes the stories are too funny to not make a joke out of. Yeah, you know, it's funny when when I was reading that story. Uh, you know, the headline was like, you know, local man takes out pedophile with with moose antlers, and I read the story and I got the rest of the scoop. Uh, but uh, it it it's fascinating to me. That a where'd they get the moose from? You know, like and really. Did you take out the moose by yourself? Moose are really big. But uh, all, all that being said, you know, I, I always think, man, you know, uh, vigilante justice is done. And this is a clear case that it's not done. And, and I'm not advocating for vigilante justice, but I, I feel like I had become uh, jaded and I feel like I'd become a naysayer when people would say people are going to flip out and they're going to start taking the rules into their own hands. And I would say, no, they're not. People are just so willing to be complacent with whatever the status quo is. They're not going to become complacent. They're going to accept whatever comes their way. And uh, I don't want to say I'm glad that this guy did what he did because I'm not, but I will say I'm surprised that this man went and killed somebody that was accused of child sexual assault and uh, murdered him with a shovel and then with a, finished him off with a, uh, a pair of moose antlers uh, because I just didn't see that. It, it was shocking to me. But um, it does kind of uh, beg the question, is vigilante justice still around? And you know, if it is, why don't we hear about it? And again, not advocating for it, but I'm just curious to know what the outcome is, Jeff. Well, it's the only guy I can think of because I'm I'm looking at the humorous aspect of the of, of the story, mm-hmm. and I know it's not all humorous, but the only way it could have made it better is if he had a dirty diaper and just just like wiped on the guy's face. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was definitely a crazy story, to say the least. Very messy uh, in that way. And uh, I have to say, it's uh, one of those things that you look at and you say, oh, my goodness, what what on earth happened here? And um, again, not glad that it happened, but I'm just very surprised at it because I didn't think things like that happened anymore. So anyway, Jeff, I appreciate your call from Lansing, Michigan on WILS. We're going to get to the rest of your calls straight ahead. Our phone number is 833-482-5337. And I want you to hear this clip of audio. 
It's a clip of audio with respect to the teacher of the year who was accused of sexual misconduct with a 13-year-old student. Listen to this. Parents are learning some shocking information that a teacher was arrested for sexual misconduct with a student under 14 years old here at Lincoln Acres Elementary School in National Cities. Jackie Ma, she's 34 years old. She's been working with the district since 2013. This all came to light after a parent in National City contacted the police department suspecting their child, their 13-year-old child, having an inappropriate relationship with her. Now, police came to the school, arrested her. The students were not involved in the arrest or their day was not interrupted. Ma was taken to the Las Colinas Detention and Reentry Facility in Santee. She was actually out on bail for $100,000. So I got to ask you here, and, and again, please feel free to chime in. Um, as this is happening, I'm reading this, I'm hearing it. What I want to know is, This never happened. Not a single teacher ever made an advance at me when I was 13 years old. I don't know if your teachers were making advances at you when you were 13, but it never happened to me. This woman, I wouldn't call her a a dime piece. I wouldn't call her a supermodel, but she's not an ugly person. You know, she's a moderately attractive woman, 34 years old. Most of my teachers were in their 60s or 70s when I was uh, younger. But my question here is, I mean, if your teacher made a pass at you, if your teacher made a play for you, please give us a call, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4825-337, because I've never heard of such a thing even happening, and it, it fascinates me that this is happening every day. There's a new story of a teacher getting involved with a, a student, and it just it, it blows me away, honestly. So I'm really just at a loss for words here. But to give you the headline here, National City Teacher of the Year uh, has been accused of sexual misconduct with a 13-year-old and has been re-arrested, right? So this National City Teacher uh, was previously arrested for reportedly having an inappropriate relationship with a former student and has been rearrested on additional felony charges, according to the National City Police. According to the department, Jackie Ma, 34, was bailed out, but now she's back in custody. So we're going to continue this story on the other side of the break, plus your calls, 833 the number four, Valdez, 833-4825-337. I am Rich Valdez. It's America at Night, and we're coming right back to your calls. Welcome back. We're talking about the teacher of the year who was accused of sexual misconduct with a 13-year-old boy uh, and was re- – actually, I don't even know if it's a boy. <laughs> let me not, let me not uh, embellish here. And was arrested and then rearrested. And uh, they're continuing the investigation. On March 9th, detectives conducted surveillance that uh, concluded with the arrest of Miss Ma, the teacher, on 
on the 3300 block of National Avenue. Ma has been rebooked into Las Colinas Detention Facility, and the National City Police Department will not be releasing any additional information about the case as the victim is a minor and the investigation is ongoing, according to police. So that's what we know so far. But yet, every almost every single day this week, there's been a teacher or some adult woman that has been charged with um, sexual abuse of a minor, typically a male. We will continue with your calls and these stories as calls come into the program. 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Let's go to Steve in Rolla, Missouri, KTTR. Steve, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Uh, hi, Rich. I'm going to have to make it kind of quick because I'm actually <laughs> working at the same time and I'm about to do a delivery. Um, gotcha. Okay, I was going back to the story that you were talking about earlier. I only kind of caught the tail end. So I, the way I understood it, the guy that was killed with a moose antler was accused, right? He wasn't convicted and let out of prison. I think he'd been convicted earlier uh, in his life. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. It was It was kind of fuzzy whether he'd been convicted or not. Yeah, earlier I mean, in his life okay so i didn't catch all that but um you know that's <clears throat> there are some things that i sometimes think that we should have been vigilante justice on but we have to be very careful with that because accusations are mere accusations and i can tell you myself someone who's accused of something going through a, a bad divorce i went through a trial mm. last december wow um, and was accused of touching my daughter. So I've been through that, and I can only imagine that someone came up and, say, popped me in the back of the head because I was accused. Now, you can do a Freedom of Information Act and um, get a transcript of my trial and see that there was no evidence, no anything, timeline, nothing whatsoever. But I was accused, and if a prosecutor wants to get you arrested, you know, like Judge Napolo said, and many other former prosecutors and and such would tell you that a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. Um, I I learned how the grand jury system worked after I was accused, and before I was arrested, one of my friends who's a sergeant in the police department told me, and he said, well, they only present what they want to present. They don't have to present the whole investigation. So if they right. went and say got a computer or something and it was not, there was nothing on there, they don't have to say, well, we this was part of our investigation. We got this computer and it was an evidence and there was nothing on it. There was nothing on a phone or, or so such or so forth. And so that's one of the things that I don't really understand. I really don't understand why we still use grand juries when we when it's able to be worked like that because uh, they really I'm I'm not sure whether it's just to streamline things but it really does ruin people's lives until they go to trial and they're found not guilty you know of of said crime that they're uh, accused of so it's just one of them things you know um, Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes I you know I used to get furious if I heard somebody breathe the words that somebody touched a kid human nature made me get furious and right. I would say, you know, well, I'd rather just take them and out and tie them up to the tree yeah. back in Woodshed. the and let the coyotes get them and stuff and whatever. And just maybe go out and feed them every now and then let them suffer. Then I got accused. And I thought, right. whoa, what happened? The shoe was on the other foot and you realize, hey, it's yeah, not all it's cracked up to be. So not everybody 
maybe is doing this. And so I've done a lot of research and kind of figure what, what's going on here. And it happens quite often, I guess, um, in marriages and divorces and whatever cases that somebody needs wants to get revenge, they use ch- children as weapons. And that's just a sad fact that children are used as weapons. So, yeah, you know, and, and, and people, and when people do this, it's the, the sad part is when people do this and people are exonerated, even their life is over. Your character. Right. No, you're a hundred percent right. I knew a guy who and accused of sexual assault. He was actually an actor and um, lost his job on the, on the TV program he was working on and had to fight a case and defend himself for something like 18 months, spent a ton of money and finally was able to make the case that he didn't even know this woman. It, it was a very uh, just, you know, kind of a disgruntled fan, never got to meet him or whatever it was, and was able to finally make the case that, no, I don't know this person, and was able to defend himself. But it was scary for him because, you know, people didn't want to hire him. He wasn't getting acting work. It, it was very difficult. And and it made me realize, man, this is tough. And you're right. Our, our system is designed to presume that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. However, when it comes to certain crimes, in particular those against children, and again, I, uh, I, 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 I support that. I think we should take those crimes seriously. Um, people tend to think, oh my gosh, you know, uh, you better not make a mistake when accusing somebody of a child sexual assault because the wrath comes quickly and it comes furiously. And I, I think you're 100% right, Steve, and Rala Montana, KTTR, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, good luck working tonight. I know you said you were on the road and you were on the grind, so uh, Godspeed to you. Let's continue our calls, and let's go to Paul in Zanesville, Ohio, W-H-I-Z. Paul, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hey, good evening, Rich. Um, yeah, uh, hey. from the other side of the spectrum here, you, you conjured up an old memory. <clears throat> Back when I was in the seventh or eighth grade, <clears throat> I was in the drama class and then went on to be in the thespian club and all that. But anyway, <clears throat> when I first started, they was putting on a play <clears throat> <excuse me. clears throat> and my, um, my, uh, teacher had, had hired a sub or they gave her a sub. Now my job was to run the spotlight. Okay. Up in the balcony. And um, as this uh, student teacher or, you know, teacher's assistant was helping out, she would come up and help in the uh, uh, balcony with me. Now, this woman was a good-looking woman, and, you know, she would wear uh, skirts to her dress. Now, she'd sit down beside me, and she'd wreck that dress up. You know, so I'm sitting there, I'm in the same grade, and I'm going, wow, <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> think about this. I'm in the seventh or eighth grade. She's whispering in my ear to give me my cues, you know, um, darker light, you know, lighter light, because I'm running this spotlight, you know, change the color and so forth. So, um, you know, I, I was like, oh, boy, what, you know, what's going on here? But I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't have any complaints. <laughs> and I had to give you the, you know, the other side of that. As a boy that age sure. and that pretty young assistant, you know, I was like, wow, I kind of look forward to drama, drama class and right. practice or not practice. But at the end of the day, I was looking forward to going up in that balcony with that teacher. Lucky you. I never had a teacher that I, I, I thought was cute like that. <laughs> they were all older. Uh, but uh, yeah, listen, I get it. And, and that's why I'm saying when I hear these stories, I think, man, I was never in that situation. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine it. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to make light of it in any way. 
But uh, yeah, Paul, great point that you you uh, when you joined the uh, the theater club and the thespian club that you know you were looking forward to uh, shining the spotlight on your teacher, and and I'm pretty sure there's plenty of kids out there that are in that situation, but I don't think those are the ones that are complaining and making these allegations. So it's interesting how times have changed. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Uh, Zanesville, Ohio, WHIZ. Have a great weekend. Godspeed to you. We're going to continue with the rest of your calls uh, straight ahead. The phone number, 833-482-5337. the number four, Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. Uh, we've got a lot of people. The phone lines are jam-packed on this topic. Let's go to Ken from Aridan, Alabama, listening on 103.9. Al, uh, excuse me, Ken, go right ahead. Hi, Rich. It's good to talk to you, brother. I love your show. Hey, Ken, thank you for calling, and I appreciate that. What's on your mind? Well, I just wanted to talk about this uh, pedophile thing that you had on earlier. Uh, I've been a law enforcement official for about 20 years, currently retired. And when it comes to most crimes like that down here in the Deep South, you know, most of the Bible-believing people down here will absolutely let the cops do what they need to do. But when it comes to family, brother, Mm -hmm. sometimes the law in their own hands. And, you know, being on both ends of the stick, I can understand, you know, it's up to the it's up to the sheriff and the D.A. what they need to do with it. But, you know, I'm I'm not going to say either way because, you know, I'd have to know the particulars. Right. And and and, you know, and you would know this better than anybody can, that there are these um, uh, extenuating circumstances when it becomes a crime of passion. Right. And I don't know if that accounts for your kid getting uh, attacked or whatever, but I would hope it does, uh, because I would think that, you know, um, if my kid, let me tell you, one time my kid told me she thought somebody touched her the wrong way and I was on a cruise and they were about to throw me in the brig of this cruise because I lost my head. And uh, thankfully, I spoke with the with the captain and the first mate and the first officer of the ship, and uh, they were able to calm me down. And I calmed them down, and we saw the security footage and whatever. But it, it was um, it was a contentious situation. And uh, you know, when it comes to your kids, you know, really, you you, you, you kind of throw caution to the wind, and you're like, hey, look, I only got these kids, right? They're the only ones I've got, and I'm their last line of defense. And you kind of go for it, and. And, uh, you know, so I, I hear you both being a law enforcement official and being a human being. I think it's incumbent upon us as as men that look after our children to do what's right. Sir, absolutely. And as, as far as the extenuating circumstances thing goes, uh, you're absolutely right. And that's all taken in consideration whenever the D.A. gets a case. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad it is. 
Because, you know, far be it from any one of us to say, you know, you walk into your house, let's just say, and, you know, you find your wife with some other dude. I'm just making stuff up here. Um, and you lose your head and you're supposed to be the bad guy. That's your house. It's your wife. I, I don't think you're necessarily the bad guy. And, you know, kudos to the guy that's able to say, hey, guy, get out of my house. Get out of my bed. Right. Good for that guy. I just don't know if everybody's built that way, Ken. You're absolutely right, brother. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. But anyway, let me tell you, it's really good listening to your show. And thanks for your time, brother. Keep on rocking. I appreciate it, brother. Godspeed to you. God bless you. I appreciate you. And let us continue our calls from Alabama straight into New Jersey, listening online at com. Let's go to Mel in Jersey. What's up, Mel? It's Rich Valdez. How you doing? So I wanted to see if you remember that story about that lady. Her name was Mary Kay Letourneau, I think it was. Mary Kay Letourneau, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she was probably one of the first ones that came about. And uh, he was about 12 years old, I remember, when she went to jail for seven years, came back out, had a kid with him. It seems to be like, I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. I don't remember our teachers being this young. Um, Right. (laughs) I remember all our teachers being old. 100%. You know, what's interesting with Mary Kay Letourneau was that I think they had another kid and they actually got married and then she died of like some cancer or something like that. And uh, it, it, you know, after she did her jail time and whatever, whatever they gave her, she still they stayed together despite all of that, which was fascinating to me. I don't think it was right, but it was fascinating nonetheless. I guess they were saying that they were really love because she was in jail for a while. She was in jail for like seven years. It wasn't even a little bit of time. And then they came right back out and went right back out and had another kid. Yeah, got married and everything. It's crazy. It really is crazy. And I don't know if that makes it right, honestly. To me, that just means like they double down on their crazy. But fascinating, to say the least, that that, that happens. And it's still happening today. This lady was Teacher of the Year. And uh, again, 34 years old, not, not a, a bad-looking woman by any means. And I just think to myself, my goodness, do they have nothing better to do? Do they not have the dating apps? Like, I don't understand how the, these women that are attractive are are going for guys that are 13 years old. Like, to me, this is just absolutely sick, Mel. You know what I think it is, to be completely honest with you, I think that um, because if you remember Mary, Mary Kay, she was, there was a quite, and there was, I think, like two other women, and they were all married. I think they feel like they're not getting attention at home. And these young boys are like infatuated with them or something, and they feel so like empowered because they're the teacher. It's like I think it's a it's it's a mental thing because that's the only thing I can think of. Most of these women, for the most part, have been married with, with kids or just pretty pretty young women. Yeah, it's definitely a mental thing when you're married and you go for a a, a thirteen or fourteen year old guy. Absolute insanity. Thank you, Mel, for calling in. I appreciate you listening online. More to come straight ahead. Eight three three the number four Valdez. Eight three three four Valdez. Your calls and more. We're about to wrap this thing up. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're wrapping up with your calls. Let's go to, let's see, John in Ohio, W-N-I-R. Go right ahead. Hey, how you doing? Wonderful, thanks. Good, good. Good to hear your voice. Um, 
Thank you. Yeah, I kind of like what you were talking about before about, you know, <clears throat> the teachers doing stuff to people and all that. Nobody ever really done anything to me, but I do remember, I don't know, seventh, eighth grade maybe, I don't know, something like that. But her form of punishment was, all right, sit on my desk. And, you know, she always wore a dress, you know, all that. But I was like, oh, okay. You know, I kind of look forward to it, you know. <laughs> so let me get this straight. You misbehave in class, and, and she tells you to to get to come over her desk, and it wasn't any punishment at all, right, John? Yeah, exactly. I'd act up just to go into that. Right, you know? right. You were like, let me make sure I get caught talking in class so that I can uh, spend some time with the teacher. Yeah, I think probably they, they uh, don't even realize the impact that they're having. And lucky you for having a young teacher that was attractive. Never happened to me. I mean, I, literally, my kindergarten teacher, uh, her name was Mrs. Brandon. She was like 60-something. Then there was Mrs. Goldstein, my first grade teacher. She was like 70-something. My third grade teacher, what was her name? I think her name was Mrs. Freilich. Again, 80-something. It, it just it went on and on. I, I think the youngest teacher I ever had was probably in her 50s. And uh, when my kids were in school, I remembered, man, a lot of young teachers, you know, out of school for one year, two years, 10 years, lots of young teachers. But that wasn't the case for me growing up. So lucky you, John, uh, from WNIR in Ohio, (laughs) that you had a young teacher. And I want to leave you with a final thought here. We'll talk about this a little bit more on Monday. But the... um, the wing place, Buffalo Wild Wings, is getting sued because somebody ate one of their boneless chicken wings and discovered that the meat is not chicken wing meat. In fact, it's chicken breast. And the customer decided to sue, saying, you're selling me chicken breast and pretending that it's chicken wing. So... He says that Buffalo Wild Wings is duping customers into believing they're chowing down on wing meat when they're only chowing down on breast meat. And this is, in effect, a chicken nugget (laughs) with, with buffalo sauce on it. So the nationwide restaurant chain is being dragged into a class action suit by a man named Ayman Halim. He's got a serious bone to pick here. <laughs> That's their pun on TMZ. And uh, I'll keep you up to speed on this lawsuit. But in the suit obtained by TMZ, uh, Halim claims that, that Buffalo Wild Wings, boneless wings, are just not deboned wings, but they're duping customers because they're actually slices of breast meat that are deep fried and have a composition that's more like chicken nuggets. So, huh, that's where we are. I want to give a big shout-out to my buddy Frank from Evergreen, Montana on KOFI, as well as Robert on Charleston in Charleston on WTMA. The music means they're kicking me out, and it's time to go. It's time for the weekend. But, of course, I uh, always enjoy our time together here on America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. So I say to you, hasta la próxima. Until the next time, take care, good night, and God bless. I am Rich Valdez, and I'll join you Monday for another edition of America at Night. Take care.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.